Hello. I'm actually going to ask you to stand up again. Everybody stand. Thanks. Simon says, just kidding. Um, okay. Job 1, 1 through 12. Job's character and wealth. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Satan allowed the test to Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to dig into a new series starting tonight. Taylor has just read the opening lines of one of the longer books in the Bible. And I'm going to get into why this book is so long. But Job, but let's see if there's anyone here brave enough to say, this is my favorite book in the Bible. Anybody? Your favorite book. Y'all have been through it. That's what that means. So... Job is a fascinating book. Let me read you a psalm, Psalm 113, 1 through 3. And I want to read this to you. I want to read this to you because if we read the first chapter correctly tonight, and if we look at the first chapter correctly tonight, you're going to be wrestling with the question, can this be true? So let me read you the psalm that you would wrestle with the question, can this be true? Psalm 113, 1 through 3, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us through your word tonight. You've already been ministering to us in worship. Lord, we were singing loud. People we're able to put down things as Jordan gave us a call to worship. I ask that you would continue to let us be able to put down things and just pick up you for just a little bit here, Lord. May your spirit move in a mighty way. May we see your word accurately and may our hearts 
be motivated to be moved alongside you and who you are. Not who we think you are, not who we want you to be, but who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the opening chapters of Job, when read honestly, test every idea you've ever had about God. If you grew up in a church setting, you read the opening lines of Job, and if you read them clearly, it is like being put in a medieval torture rack where your limbs are being pulled in all directions and it just hurts. I think two of the most problematic verses in the entire Bible are in this first chapter, and Taylor just read them a second ago. It is a fascinating book. But it is a book that is 42 chapters long, and I have five commentaries that I've, I've pulled out and purchased and been looking at for the book of Job. I, I mean, I've probably gone through a few hundred pages just looking at chapter one. It's amazing how much has been written and talked about and thought about with this book of Job for a long time. It may be the oldest piece of literature that humankind has. We don't know a lot about the origins, and we're going to get into that. But the reason, I'll go ahead and tell you this up front, the reason God gave us a book with 42 chapters is because when it comes to suffering and when it comes to wrestling with God, are you just and can I trust you, that's a process that can't be done quickly. And any of you, some of you have had a charmed life, and it's just always gone well. You're like, suffering, I'm not here for that. Your day's coming. Everybody's day comes. And some of you are like, you don't even know what I found out today. I just talked to a guy just a little while ago, right before we started, who found out some terrible family news upon bad news, upon bad news, upon bad news. You don't know when the phone's going to ring. You don't know when the car is going to come into your lane. You don't know when the things are going to happen. But God in his sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness has given us this book. And it's a beautiful book. But it is not an easy journey. So that being said, I want to give you just a little breakdown of what the book looks like very quickly. I want to go through a few different things because I hope that in your, in your small groups, in your personal devotion, you'll, you'll choose to dig into these 42 chapters. We will not dig into every chapter word for word as we go through this series, but I hope that you will dig into this book. So let me just give you some real practical, you note takers are going to love this. You're going to just, you're going to eat this up. So Let's talk about the characters and the purpose of the book. So this book has a few characters. It has Job, it has his children, it has his wife, who conspicuously will not show up until just the right moment. It has his four friends, and it has the challenger, and if you are like writing stuff down. So when, when Taylor read the, the text, she read it accurately as it is written. The word is Satan. The name is Satan, but the real Hebrew is the Satan. And he's this shadowy character. And the best of scholars can't for sure say that this is Satan himself. But the idea behind the name Satan, the title Satan, means the deceiver and the accuser. And so one of the main characters is this accuser. 
And then there's certainly God. And so the purpose of this book, the book of Job certainly holds up a mirror in front of us so that we can see ourselves, but that's, that's a shallow reading. When we read a book and we just see ourselves, that's a shallow reading. When you read the story of David and you're like, I'm David and my boss is Goliath, it's a very shallow reading. And your boss probably isn't Goliath, and you're probably not David. Uh, and so just spoiler alert, and neither am I. It certainly holds up a mirror, though, for us to see our lives, but as much as it holds up a mirror for us to see our lives, more so, this book is primarily about God himself. And God gives us this book so that we can stare deeply into who he is and decide if we're on his team or not. There is no way to walk away from this book in neutrality. And then you have to ask, what's... What's, what's the, this is not in one of the slides, but what, what you have to ask is Job this whole time, the whole book after chapter one, really after chapter two, Job is going to ask for justice. The whole time Job's going to ask for justice. And we're going we're gonna to really kind of flesh this out. But the problem is at the end of Job in chapter 42, he never gets an answer from God, is God just? And the reason that God doesn't answer his question, this is really important. You can zone out after this if you want. The reason that God doesn't answer his question is because so often we ask the wrong question. God answers an entirely different question that is much bigger than is he just. And so you can read this book and think God never answered his question. You can go through your life and think, God never told me why. That he doesn't have to. And it's okay if he doesn't tell you why. But he's probably going to show you something bigger and better than why. The question is, will we be listening and paying attention? So what's missing from the book of Job and why? Well, there's a few things missing from this book that are different from pretty much every other book in the Bible. There's a few that have some similarities, but by and large, this one stands alone because the author's name is not mentioned. The date that this is written is not mentioned. The location, nobody knows where Ooze is. Like nobody, nobody knows where it is. Uh, and so the location is very fuzzy. There's no politics mentioned, and Job is also not an Israelite. And you have to ask why. Why would those things be missing? To include these things would ruin the universal meaning of the book. If we knew there was this crazy political situation or we knew there was some plague going around or we knew some, we, would all not, we wouldn't all be able to identify. This book is universally crafted so that we can all identify with what's happening here. Again, this is incredible wisdom on God's part to say, I'm going to not tell you certain things so that I can show you the big thing. He knows we get hung up in the weeds. Another big thing, you can write this down, I'm going to come to it probably multiple times, especially the first couple of weeks, is the retribution principle. The retribution principle. I'll give you the definition and then we'll come back to it a few times. It's also, if you, if you do get a commentary on the book of Job or you have some other theological books, it may be represented with the letters R and P in capitals. The idea is the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That's the retribution principle. It is heavy in this book. 
The righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. So let me give you just a quick outline of this book because, again, we're not going to go through all of it. And you probably, if you've read it before, who's read the book of Job? And, okay, now that you've had your hands up, that's great. Now, who's read the book of Job and kind of skipped over some of the dialogue between the friends? There you go. I see those hands. That's honest. I appreciate that. In church, I appreciate that. That's good. Um, There's a reason they're in there. So the narrative, there's two narratives. There's a narrative opening and a narrative closing. The whole rest of the book is poetry. The narrative is the first three chapters opening. The closing is chapter 42. And then we have these friends, these three friends. Nobody needs enemies when you have friends like that. I think this is where the expression came from. So these three friends are going to show up, and they're going to go from chapters 4 through 27. And then, then there's going to be this, this wisdom hymn, and all, this is kind of the middle. This is how a lot of these books are written. They're kind of bookends. And the middle is going to be this wisdom hymn, and Job's going to reflect. And at the end of his reflection, he is going to once again proclaim he is innocent, and he is suffering as an innocent man. Then Job's going to have a fourth buddy show up. He's a young guy. He's a yah. And so there's like a young adult that shows up amongst like all the sages. And, uh, and actually he's like the wisest of all the friends. So just like, you know, that or like self-high five, whatever. But like he's like the wisest of all the friends. And so Elihu is going to show up and he's going to go for a few chapters. Job's not even going to respond really to Elihu. Elihu's just going to just go with it. And uh, so he hasn't learned like word control yet. But still, he's like very wise. Uh, and then... And then the chapters most everybody skips to. You get through the first couple of chapters, you start reading the friend's dialogue, and you're like, I'm a little sleepy. I don't understand what they're saying. You skip to the last part, and you get to 38 through 41, and God shows up. And we will get there. And we won't take every, we won't be in there for like, you know, we won't do this for 37 weeks and then get there. But God does show up. And it's unlike anything we would expect. I'll tell you this, it's anything but, but like warm and fuzzy. But Job has some pretty incredible things to say after it's over, and, and that's in the closing remarks, and then it's done. And Job's original question, God, why are you doing this and are you just, is never answered. So let's dig in. The first five verses, if we're going to break this down, the first five verses are going to be about Job's character. And so, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. If you're an underliner, this gets said three times in the first two chapters, twice by God, once by the author. And so, we know this is not just like an accolade given to him by other humans, God himself says that Job is blameless and upright. Again, if you're taking notes, if you're writing stuff down, blameless means that your thoughts are pure and upright means your actions are pure. So God noted and the author notes that Job's like thinking was good and his actions were good. Hebrews were very big and he's not a Hebrew, but this does fall under Hebrew literature because it's in the canon here. Hebrews are really big on words don't matter as much as your actions. And your actions come from your thoughts. And so we're saying, man, this guy had good thinking about the Lord and about life. And he had good actions too. So he's blameless and pure. 
Uh, he feared God. To fear God, I, I thought this was a great definition. I read this recently. Fearing God means that you take God serious. We always wonder, like, what does it mean to fear God? To fear God simply means you take him serious. And so, like, when you open your Bible for your quiet time, do you take him serious? When you come to church, do you take him serious? When it's time to, like, give, you know, a tenth of your income to the Lord, do you take him serious? When it comes to, like, being upright and honest, when it comes to treating people with integrity, when you go on dates, do you take, the, do you have the fear of God? Do you take him serious? Or nonchalantly, Job took God serious. Job has these seven sons. He's got three daughters. He's got like 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen. He's got 500 female donkeys, not 499, 500. Like he's on a roll here. And so most folks who, most, most scholars would look at this and they would say, the, the author's not trying to be exact. The author is trying to paint the picture that everything about Job is ideal, which has the purpose of portraying him as the ultimate example of a person who is beyond reproach and who has achieved success by the highest standards. In fact, when his kids would have a party, I see Joseph Lambert right over there. Joseph, if you were one of my kids, if Joseph and his, you have a lot of brothers and sisters, don't you? How many? Four, including you? Five, including you, close enough. All right, that's good. Well, Canada, so if Joseph and his brothers and sisters got together and they had this awesome, like, Christian party, and maybe if I was his dad, if, you know, if Heather was his mom, I might be worried about my boy. Oh, Joseph, he's a good boy, but what if he cursed God at his party? You know what? I'm going to do an extra go to church for Joseph. And, like, that's what Job did. He would, he would have an extra sacrifice for his family when they would get together and have these feasts just in case. And, and you know, that's, this is interesting because what does it mean when you curse God? Again, I think this is, so, this is, this is fascinating. To curse God in the Bible is, doesn't mean like you say like God's name in vain. That's certainly like bad. But it can mean you take credit for what's God, what God has done. You can misjudge God's motives. You can think that God won't act if you do something bad. Uh, you can express your ambitions against God. We see that in the book of James. Some of you say, I'll go to this city and I'll do business and blah, blah. You should say if the Lord wills. That's, that's cursing God, doing your own thing, expressing arrogance, Stating that there is no God. The Bible's full of these ideas of very specifically, what does it mean to curse God? And so Job said, man, what if at their parties somebody might have cursed God? Well, I'll go and I'll have a sacrifice. This is in there for a reason. You remember that, that RP we talked about? That retribution principle? This tells us a little bit of Job's theology. Job may very well have thought that the righteous prosper and the wicked are punished. Now, we're going to see that's not completely what he believed, but I can guarantee you, I think I have like 10 soles in my pocket from Peru. I can guarantee you all 10 soles. There are a bunch of you. I would bet at least half of you live your life believing in the, th this, this RP theology. You genuinely order your life believing that God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. 
And so if you go to church enough, if you, if you give enough, if you do enough, if you serve enough, if you read your Bible enough, then surely it's going to work out for you. Because that's how God works, right? He's sitting up in heaven and he's looking down and he's like, Graham Kircher, Graham has gone to school for a long time. Graham finally graduated. He's a doctor now. Graham, I'm going to bless you. Graham's like, that's right, I love my wife. She's awesome. He's like, I've been doing the right things. It's super easy to believe. Graham's been faithful to his wife. He loves his wife. He's worked hard in school. He's now got, got this big boy job making, making, you know, big boy bank and all that kind of stuff. Like he's living the dream, baby, living the dream. It would be easy for Graham to think, I'm doing the right thing, so God's going to take care of me. That idea will sink your spiritual ship And Job's got a little bit of that in him. And then the scene fast forwards to heaven. The scene goes to heaven and there's this heavenly council. And this is fascinating because now remember, Job is not privy to any of this that is taking place. Job is just on earth living his life. But the book in verse 6 jumps up to heaven. And we see something that Job never sees. But what's taking place in heaven while righteous Job, righteous in his thoughts and his deeds, is living his life, there's something else happening up in heaven. So let's take a a look at verse 6. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And I'm going to read it as correctly as it is in Hebrew. And the Satan, the accuser, also came among them. For the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And the Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, I'll get to that in just a second. There's some interesting things that are happening here. This section has been read wrongly so many times. There's a great little book. If you want like a a kind of a, a novelette on the book of Job that's like super readable and yet really, really theologically good. I would recommend this book by Christopher Ashe called Trusting God in the Darkness. And he makes the point to note that it is clearly God's Satan. Notice the apostrophe S. This is God's Satan. There there is no battle, there is no competition. God summons Satan and the sons of God and they come. If you read this wrong, you'll see this is a power match between God and the challenger. There is no power match. And to be honest with you, it would be much easier to read if there was a power struggle. But what we're about to get into is much more troubling because there's no power struggle. And this is where, like, you you need to go back to whatever your hard class was in college and put on that thinking apparatus that you used at that point in time because, like, this is deep waters and these are troubling verses that we're about to get into. What does God say in verse 8? The Lord said to the Satan... Have you considered my servant Job? 
There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Verse 8 is one of those linchpin verses. Because if you read it right, what you see is that God knows what's going on in the Satan's mind. And he goes ahead and he calls it out. Much like when, when uh, if you, some of you nanny, um, you know, if, you've, if you remember like uh, either nannying or you were at home and your mom would say something like it was summer break and uh, maybe she had like baked something that was awesome and, uh, and when you came in from playing, you know, you might like walk up and she's like, you want one of those cookies, don't you? And you're like, how did you know? Like, you knew, and you were just trying to, like, work up the courage because maybe she said, like, you can't have it until after dinner. One of those things where, like, a little bit of forbidden fruit, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Perukov, um, a little bit of, uh, of, like, forbidden fruit, but, like, you're like, how does my mom know these things? And it, it's the same way. That is the correct way to read this. The Lord knows what the challenger is thinking. Again, there is no power struggle here. Have you considered Job? And the answer is clearly yes. It's rhetorical. Of course he's been considering Job. This guy is the accuser. This guy wants to challenge Job in his faith. He wants to show God that Job's not really faithful. But if you read it wrongly, it can look really mean. If you read it wrongly, you get the picture that if you live upright and just and you're trying to honor God, you might become this carrot that God dangles in front of Satan and says, hey, you want to mess with this one? But the accuser doesn't need a carrot. The accuser is roaming the earth. And in the New Testament, we see that Satan, the devil, is roaming the earth looking for those whom he may devour. And then Satan himself jumps in with this, with this RP theology. And Satan in verse 9 says to the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land him. Does Job fear God for what God gives? Or does Job fear God because God is God? That's what Satan's asking. He's asking, does God do good to those who fear him and bad to those who do not? Job is, is, is being put on trial and he's not even around. He has no idea it's happening. But the Satan is asking the question. And the same question could be asked of you. Are you like a Christian because things are going better now that you're a Christian? Or are you a Christian because Jesus Christ is the ultimate? That's a, there's a big difference there. One is that RP theology that I'm a Christian because God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And I would rather receive a blessing than a punishment. That would probably mean that 
either you are just a baby Christian or you're not a Christian. This is a big deal that he's asking him here. He's saying, does Job fear you for no reason? You've only done good to him. His faith hasn't even been tested. Give me one second with him, and I'll have him running to the other pagan gods and leaving you in the dust in a heartbeat. This is the gauntlet that's been thrown down. I think verse 10 is such a, such a powerful verse because the retribution principle that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer is probably deeper in your heart than you realize. It's a dangerous theology and it's coated with just enough truth to make you see it and eat it and then you have a very spoiled stomach that potentially causes you to dismiss God altogether because if you're following God because you think life's gonna be better with God in this life, it's gonna go well with you. When things go bad, and they will go bad at some point, you're going to look up to God and you're going to look down to your Bible and you're going to wonder, do I even know who this God is? And that is not on him. That is on us because he has clearly given us a picture of who he is. And so this idea... Does Job really even know you? This isn't even the most troubling verse. Verse 11. The Satan says, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Verse 12. Maybe the most troubling verse in the Bible. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from him and the presence of the Lord. It seems like what is about to happen to Job is an emotionless transaction in heaven. It seems that what's, what takes place between God and the Satan is written with something like, Job, nothing personal by what's about to happen. You know, there's several of us on staff that, that work together. If, uh, if, if Katie came up to me and she said, hey, can I do this thing? And I was like, yeah, Katie, go do that thing. And some of, somebody didn't like the thing that Katie did. Well, I, ha I would have no way of saying, oh, it's not my fault. No, I told Katie, I was like, yeah, go do it. Where does the buck stop? The buck stops with me. I had the power to stop it. Do you see what's happening here? God is as much to blame for what's about to happen to Job as the Satan. That is as clear of a way as I know how to say it. Uh, several years ago, I was working at a church, and I've told you the story, uh, and I got fired. And I remember my friend, uh, my friend Scott, I was just so mad at the, at the guy that fired me, so mad. And my buddy Scott one day said, I hear you, Thomas, but you know God could have stopped it, right? And that made me more mad because I hadn't thought about that. I really hadn't thought that God could have stopped it. I thought that like God allowed it or like the, like the world's broken and bad things happen in a broken world. Like 
almost like God was like maybe like a little bit like like laid up that day and he was like hurt a little bit and he was like, oh, I can't stop that. Poor Thomas, but I'll be there to comfort him. That's not the way it plays out. There's not a power battle. God doesn't have a bad day. He doesn't have an off day. He doesn't have a weak day. He just is. And he's fully who he is all the time. The reason I think verse 12 is one of the most troubling verses in the Bible is I'll say it again. God was as much to blame for what happened to Job as Satan himself. That should trouble you. That should like shake you to your core a little bit. Like who is this God? It reminds me of the famous scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when, when the kids are talking to the Beaver family and Mrs. Beaver, there, she's asked, uh, you know, Mrs. Beaver's asked, is Aslan safe? Is God safe? And Mrs. Beaver replies, well, no, child. He's not safe. But he's good. What we see in the opening chapters here definitely answers the question, is God safe? He is not safe. What we see through the rest of the book is the question answered, is he good? And we need to wrestle with that. And you, like, you need to soak this in. This has been heavy on me. I need this to be heavy on you too. Like this has been very heavy on me. We have this little deer. Uh, my dad yesterday sent a picture. We have a, we're having a wedding at the house this Friday, this Friday afternoon. It's going to be warm, y'all. It's Friday afternoon outside. And, uh, and so we, we're like getting ready. My dad and my brother have been working a bunch. We all live like next to each other. It's not a compound. Um, we all live like next to each other. And so my dad and, and my brother have been working a bunch, getting ready. And I was out of town in Peru, so I couldn't work to help them. But I am now. I'm helping. Um, I will, future tense, I will be helping them get ready for this wedding. And uh, my dad yesterday sent Heather and I a picture of this baby deer. We have, we have deer on the property. This little, this little, I think it's a doe, this little girl has spots all over her. And this picture, like she was so small. And my dad did like the giant blow-up deal where I was like, very grainy, dad. We don't have to do that. Um, but it was like very grainy, very, very grainy. This little deer filled up the whole camera. And Heather and I texted back, where's her mom? And dad was like, I don't know. And I texted back, I bet she's close. And dad texted back, I bet she is too. Until today, when we went outside. And I always go to the barn on Tuesdays. I have a little office upstairs and I study for Tuesday nights. And I was heading over to the barn and my dad was working. I know, I'm a bad son. He was working. He was getting ready for this wedding. And, uh, and he said, Thomas. And I didn't have my glasses on, so I'm like, you're just lucky I can see you. Uh, and he was like, he was like. And so I like sneak around and I get over to him and he said, you see it? I said, I don't have my glasses on. See what? And he said, there she is. And I look and this little spotted doe is up on the hill. And he said, she was laying right here. And when I walked over, she hopped up. And ran up the hill. He said, I don't think she has a mom. And I said, do you think she's going to make it? And we, we're a hunting family. We understand, like, wildlife a good bit. And he was like, we, we've seen a lot of animals. And, uh, and he said, I don't think she's, I don't know that she'll make it. If she can't find her mom, she probably won't survive. And I was like, I have been studying Job, and this is not helpful. 
Because the Lord can stop that. He gets, it was like really sad. I was like, this is super sad. My dad's like, what are you talking about? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, never mind. But, but it, 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 it fits right in line. The Lord can stop that. And he has not stopped it. Now, Heather, my sweet wife, got a, a big Tupperware thing, like, full of water and brought it out and, like, put it where the deer has been staying. We're like, we're going we're gonna to feed that deer. My mother-in-law said she was going to come over and feed it a bottle. Heather said, you know, you have to catch it first. She was like, oh, yeah, never mind. Um, and so, anyway, but we, we can do our part to help. But the Lord could have stopped that. And what happens in the next several verses is the Satan goes to earth and he uses a group of people called the Sabians. He uses fire. He uses the Chaldeans. And he uses the wind. And in one day, he wipes Job's family, minus his wife. Very, very smooth of him to leave her. He, once we get to her, you'll be like, oh, I know why I left her. Um, she's her own plague. Uh, and so, like he, <laughs> I mean, she is. Um, and so, anyway. We, uh, but, but with these, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> with these four things in one swoop, and once, my wife is not. My wife is not. Um, she's a blessing. You'd be his first target. You're the best thing. Oh, man. I mean, come on. She would. It's, But that's what happens in these next several verses. In one day, before Job can even absorb the news of one tragedy, another arrives and another arrives and another arrives. Do you know how some of his, do you know, do you know how his kids all died? They were having one of those parties that he would always go and he would sacrifice for afterwards. Do you think Job started to wonder, was my theology wrong? What if I had gotten up this morning and made a sacrifice for them before the party? Then would they have been spared? I think Job was really, really wrestling with all these big questions of, did I not do enough righteous things and is that why I'm being punished? And then we get to the conclusion of the first chapter. Job arose, verse 20. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he worships. And he says two things that have become famous throughout time and culture. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. And then he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That last line needs to burn into our minds as we wrestle with this. He did not charge God with wrong. Why? Because God could have stopped all of it. Why would he not charge God with wrong? And this is where we see a break in Job's theology from the RP theology. You see, in Job's theology, he has room for the cross In the other theology, the righteous are blessed, the wicked are punished. There's no room for an innocent person to suffer. 
But in Job's theology, there is room for an innocent person to suffer. You and I are no Job. He was a righteous, righteous man. You and I are certainly no Jesus, who was the most righteous, the most holy, perfect, perfect, perfect. And in his perfection, in his righteousness, God saw fit to cast down all of his wrath on him. He is the greater Job. And in the wrath of God being cast down on Jesus, it is moved from us if we are in Christ. And so when an innocent person suffers, in a sense, they can relate to Jesus much more than an unrighteous person who's being punished. So if you've been in one of these throes where you're like, I don't know that I did something to deserve this. There is one who is the great high priest who sees your pain more clearly than anyone else. The innocent one, Jesus, he's the one that can relate to you. He knows what it's like to do no wrong and yet suffer at the hand of God for good and through God's wisdom. I think as we wrap up tonight, there's two big questions that we have to ask. Because this book is a book of wisdom, not a book of justice. Do I trust God's justice Or do I trust that he is all wise in every circumstance that comes my way? And the big, big question wrapped up in that one is, do I trust God when he seems untrustworthy? For further reading, you can go to Matthew 26, the end of the chapter when Jesus goes to the garden and is pressed three times. The innocent man about to have the wrath of God unleashed on him for our sins. That is not this incredible kind moment for Jesus, but it is good and loving and wise. And Jesus trusted the wisdom of his father. And in that garden, I think that plan seemed a little shaky, a little untrustworthy, but Jesus trusted God the Father when his plan seemed untrustworthy. And my favorite, my favorite line to kind of sum all this up is in John chapter 6. In John 6, it's the famous eat my flesh, drink my blood passage. Once Jesus says that, he says it a few different ways to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He says, it, uh, he says it really, really like strongly in the passage, so strong that when he got done, people said, that's a hard teaching. I don't know if I can follow it. And it says in the text that many of his disciples left him after that. And he turned to Peter and the other disciples and he said, what about you? 
And Peter spoke for the whole group when he said, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. So if this pill is too hard to swallow of this full in-your-face picture of God, and I hope you've seen it. I hope you've seen that like God wants us to see this interaction that takes place in heaven. He does not want to hide this. He wants to show us this transaction that takes place between the challenger and God the Father. He wants us to wrestle with this. And if the pill is too hard to swallow, you better be sure you know where you're going to go. To whom else will you go? And do they really have the words of life? I think it's a good moment for us to just pause and rest in chapter 1 and to sing some songs to the Lord and to let the Lord work on us as we try to digest this passage. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would speak to us now in this worship. Lord, move in our hearts. Lord, you gave us a hard first chapter in the book of Job. There's so much to wrestle with. And God, I trust that you are wise when you seem dangerous. I trust that you are good when things seem scary. Lord, I trust that your ultimate plan will play out to bring more aha moments than I could ever imagine if I crafted it myself. Lord, meet us in this place as we sing to you now. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen.